The following is a continuation of the previous episode. Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from scripture will inspire and encourage you. We continue looking at the prophecies that make up the last section of the book of Ezekiel. Through the prophecy of the temple, we see the beautiful truth that we can freely enter the presence of the creator of the universe. This dismantles legalism and makes living with God a great adventure. It gives us a sense of hope and a source of courage. So let's go to the second thing that Ezekiel uh, prophesies, and that is the temple. In chapter 40, oh, by the way, there's a big battle in chapter 38 and uh, 39. Uh, and I, I think it's just basically part of the battle at the, at the end of days. Uh, you're used to it, hearing that there's a battle at Armageddon. As best I can tell, there's actually a gathering of armies in Armageddon. Armageddon is a Har Megiddo, the, the mountain of Megiddo. It's about 25 miles north of Jerusalem. There's a big plain there. As a matter of fact, if you stand up on Megiddo, you look down, what you see is a huge Israeli air base. And if you're there on the right day, you hear the planes taking off and everything, and everybody kind of goes, whoa, Armageddon. Uh, but actually, I think the the as best I can tell, and I, who knows, but uh, the armies gather in Armageddon. Then the the actual march is on Jerusalem, as as is usual. So, uh, chapter forty through the end of the book, we have this uh, blueprint. Chapter forty in the twenty fifth year of our captivity. Um, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, and the 14th year after the city was captured. So this is, after, this is after the capture. On the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on it toward the south with something like the structure of a city. And he took me there, and behold, there's a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had the line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. He stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix with your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple, and the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. So basically this rod's ten feet long, roughly. A cubit is... the this distance here between fingertip and elbow, so it's 18 inches or so, so it's something like 10 feet. Then he went to the gateway which faced east, he went up to the stairs, he measured the threshold of the gateway, and then the rest of this eight chapters is basically about this guy going and saying, look, this is this big, look, this is this big, look, this is this big, look, this is this big. It's, it's kind of a verbal uh, measuring of this, of this city. Now, why would God spend eight chapters talking about this city? Can you think of any other place where there's a lot of really detailed measurements about a building? Tabernacle. The tabernacle. And interestingly enough, Solomon's temple doesn't really have any of this. Solomon said, hey, <clears throat> you know, we've had this tabernacle since the time of Moses which at that point in time would be several hundred years. And I, 
Uh, sorry, David, I'm, I'm, I misspoke. David said, you know, I've got a really nice house and you've got just a, t- a tent. And we've had it for several hundred years. You know, you've got a tent and I, I want to build you a house. And the prophet says to David, good idea, go do that. And then that night, the prophet, is, I think it's Gad, if I remember right, um, uh, gets a word from the Lord and he says, I don't want David to build me a house. I, I'm fine, I'm fine in a tent. I, this is, I, like, I don't need an edifice for people to know that I'm important, you know? I, like, made this universe, and you can look up in the sky and see, hey, wow, God's real big, so this is really not necessary for me. Uh, but if you want to build something, it's okay. However, you, David, you're the, you're the war guy, and I want you to be built by the peace guy, Solomon, Shalom. I want, I, want him to be, I want the peace guy to build a house for me. So you can get all the stuff ready if you want to, but I, I want the shalom guy to build the house for me. And so Solomon does, and he doesn't make it the same size as the tabernacle. It has kind of the same proportions, but he makes it twice as big, which seems to be fine with guys. like, okay, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem. But when he makes the tabernacle, everything's really precise. And here we've got another temple, and it's really precise. Now, what is this thing? We don't obviously have time to read eight chapters, and if we did, you would get totally lost in what is he even talking about. If you want to go online and look at the, uh, and look at the uh, Ezekiel temple, you can find like computer graphics where they'll show you how all this different stuff and where it is and the dining rooms for the priests to eat the sacrifices. and It's a really elaborate complex. But a particular note... The, the actual uh, uh, place where the temple is, the temple itself is not that much different size from Solomon's temple, best I can tell. But the temple mount area, like today's temple mount, if you go look at a picture and there's this two mosques on it and it has this big um, platform that, that Herod built, it's about 37 acres. This platform is 600 acres. So it's 20 times the size. But more importantly, the actual area of the city is about 50 miles square, which actually doesn't even fit in the topography of Israel today. It spills into the Mediterranean Sea. And he asks, well, so, so commentators basically say, well, this is impossible, so it must be figurative can't happen so it must be figurative so God spent five chapters or whatever of of detailing how to build the tabernacle and they actually built it but but he did the same thing over here but it's it's just figurative this is the common understanding well it's the common understanding because theologians have historically been anti-Jewish and anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic it was very sad to go through the Holocaust Museum, and probably the sad, you know, and, and it's a, it's a it's a human tragedy without doubt. But the saddest display for me was the right at the very first when there's this big quote from Saint Augustine that says, "You shouldn't really kill the Jews; you should just disperse them." Saint Augustine, if you don't know, was is the dominant theologian in Catholicism. He's the dominant theologian in uh, Calvinism. John Calvin was just a young lawyer 
and he translated the works of St. Augustine. That was the beginning of his Christian Institutes. And then uh, Arminianism is a spinoff of Calvinism. So all the dominant strains of Christianity came from Augustine, and Augustine was anti-Semitic. The next uh, panel, you know, is Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was more along the it's okay to kill him sort of line and was used by Hitler as a justification for the Holocaust. And this came about because of a theology called replacement theology, which says, you know, God always keeps his word, but he can substitute things. So like say Mark here uh, is going to go to heaven, but uh, we'll just substitute Roger instead and you'll go to hell. That would be the natural outcome of that, which means really God's not dependable. Sad. It's really a sad position to take. Well, God doesn't break his promises. I mean, we're, he's, we're watching Israel come back to life right in front of our own eyes. And he intends to build this temple. Well, when is he going to build this temple? And why even have a temple? And furthermore, there's a temple that's coming in the future and it's going to have sacrifices in it. In fact, he changes the Levitical priesthood stuff around. That Even the Jews don't like this. We went to the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is a place where they're actually making stuff for a replacement temple. Their, their plan is to get rid of the Dome of the Rock and build another temple, and they want to be ready to institute priestly sacrifices and priestly services when that happens. So we saw the high priest's uniform. It's... It wasn't just a model. I mean, this is what the guy's going to wear. And we saw real silver trumpets and gold headbands and an ephod with the gems in it and all that stuff. They're building all this stuff. But they're not building this one. They're building, they want to rebuild the Herod one. And one of the reasons they don't like this is because it messed up the Levitical services from what they're used to. So one of the other features of this temple is that there is a river that comes out of it. So let's see. Let's look where that is. 47.1. Let's look in Ezekiel 47.1. How many buildings do you know where under the front steps a headwaters of a river comes? Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. Now, God always has the... He had the tabernacle faced east. He had the temple faced east. He's got this temple facing east. And there's only one gate on the east. Uh, If you go to Jerusalem today, there's just one gate on the wall and it's plugged up with a Muslim cemetery in front of it. The the Muslims think they can thwart God by putting a cemetery there. So... um, but the man went out the east with the line in his hand. He measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The waters came up to my ankles. A thousand cubits, fifteen hundred feet. And he answered one. Uh, and he measured uh, one thousand. Sorry, measured one thousand and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. And he measured a thousand and brought me through, and the water came up to my waist. So here's this water flowing out, and as you get away from the headwaters, it's getting deeper and deeper. It's good water. Yeah, this is a good well. All right. Verse 5, And he measured a thousand, and there was a river I couldn't cross. The water was too deep. Water in which someone can swim. It can't be crossed. He said, Son of man, have you seen this? Verse 7, I returned along the bank of river, many trees on one side. 
And he said to me, this water flows toward the east region and goes down into the valley and enters the sea. Do you know what sea is east of uh, Jerusalem? The Dead Sea. And there's, there's one river that goes into the Dead Sea now. It's the Jordan River. And it's dead because that sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. There's no place for it to flow out. Its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There'll be a great multitude of fish. You know what lives in the Dead Sea today? Nothing. They found maybe one kind of bacteria that can live in there. Everything will be where the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Enaglam. Engedi um, is barren and waste. I mean, it's, there's nothing there at Engedi. Uh, there's a spring, you know, with a little little amount of water. But yeah, this is a whole different topography here. And here's what I think is happening. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 14. I think what we're seeing here is the millennial temple. And we'll talk in a minute about why does God want a temple. In, ja- in chapter 14 of Zechariah, verse 4, And in that day, well, let's see, let's start in 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations that come against Jerusalem as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is about a, maybe a, a, a good drive and a, and a five iron from the edge of, uh, of the city of Jerusalem. And it's maybe 500 feet elevation or something like that. So he lands on, and it's a ridge that, that's on, that goes north and south. So it's the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move toward the north, half toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So what happens is Jesus comes down and, and, this, and this thing uh, splits. And there's actually water that flows both ways, it tells us. There'll be, there'll be uh, water that goes to the east. Verse 8 here, it shall be in that day. It'll be from living water shall flow from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea. Half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. You know, they have the rainy season in the winter. So what he's saying is, irrespective of whether it's raining or not, this is going to be happening every day. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Well, we haven't had any time in history where the Lord has been king over all the earth, physically. So what we see here is a time where Jesus is going to come back physically and he's going to restore Jerusalem. And furthermore, we have in Isaiah a prophecy that says every valley will be exalted and every hill made low. Uh, And we have another prophecy that says that the whole uh, area of Jerusalem is going to become a great plain. So the reason that you can have this 50-square-mile city and this new geography is because the topography changes dramatically. And this is part of what the restoration is in the Millennial Kingdom. So why does God in the Millennial Kingdom want to restore a temple? We all know Jesus was the final sacrifice. In fact, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. And we can see that um, 
in Hebrews chapter 9, indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread called the sanctuary, verse 3, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant overlaid with gold, the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. We can't talk about this in detail right now. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part performing the services, but in the second part uh, went once, once a year with blood and offered for himself and the people sins committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit was indicating this, that the way into the holies of holies was not yet made manifest while the tabernacle was standing. It was symbolic for the present time. And then he goes on to say that this is a copy of the real thing in heaven and that we... Let's just skip over to chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there's this, there's this tabernacle that priests would go in once a year, and that was a sign for us, and we can actually do this every day. We're, we're invited to do this every day, to go as a high priest ourselves after the order of Melchizedek through the Spirit of Christ, go into this holy place and not just sprinkle blood on a, on a symbol of God, but actually say, God, sprinkle me with your blood and make my heart cleansed so I can serve you. We're supposed to do this every day. Well, if God has given a reality of a, of a tabernacle as a place to go into His presence, that's a symbol of us who can now actually go into His presence because we have the Holy Spirit. And the sacrifice, once sacrifice, once for all has been, has been made, why would you need another physical temple? Well, let's just talk about temple for just a minute before we answer that question. The temple was a place to go into the presence of God. And the way the temple worked, all five senses were engaged. You go there and you, your sight was engaged. I mean, it's beautiful, overlaid with gold and tall and spacious. I mean, your eyes were engaged. Your, your touch was engaged. I mean, you, you took an animal in there and you, and you went to baptize. They've now found over a hundred baptismals under the Temple Mount. There's probably a thousand of them. You'd go and get baptized to purify yourself before you went in. Your uh, ears are engaged. There's Levites singing and there's uh, trumpets playing and harps playing. And, um, and there's uh, just like at Disneyland, you know, background music all the time. Uh, and your, your nose is engaged. They've got incense burning. Now, I hate incense. If, if I go in somebody's house and they've got incense, I just start trying to figure out how you know, I get my head out the window. It, I'm allergic to it. It just kills me. It gives me a splitting headache. But in this Temple Institute, they had to smell the stuff they've recreated uh, from the temple. God, it smelled awesome. It didn't have that awful smell that uh, the candles these days have. It just smelled great. And, and it's a place to go and meet God and then take that presence with you the rest of the week. And it's been this way all along. Um, but 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, what? What does he tell us about the temple? What is the temple according to Paul? It's our body. Yeah, let's look at 1 Corinthians 3. You know, this is right after he says, uh, we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and if anyone's work, it's going to be judged. It may be wood, hay, stubble and burn up or gold, silver, precious stones and, and endure. But whatever it is, uh, the day will declare it, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13, because it will be revealed by fire. And anyone's work builds and, redu- and endures, he'll receive a reward. If it's burned, he'll suffer loss. And then he says this, verse 16, Do you not know you're the temple of God? And the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. What happened to Solomon's temple? It was destroyed. Why? What did we learn? They didn't do the sabbatical. They, they, They didn't trust God. What else? They didn't keep their treaty. They broke their word. What else? They worshipped idols. He showed them a vision of them in the temple facing the east. Now, why does the the door face the west? Well, all the sun worship, they're putting their back, they're turning their back to the sun worship. And here they are facing the east, worshiping the sun in the temple. And he said, you've set up idols in your hearts. Remember that? And not only that, they're being unjust. They're not bringing justice to people in Israel. So if you're going to not do your job of being my people, I'm just going to knock this thing down. Well, guess what for us? We have, we have a gold, silver, precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble at the judgment seat, but we also have accountability right now because we're keepers of the temple. Because we have the Holy Spirit in us. In Ezekiel, he sees... In the early part, the Shekinah glory leave the temple. It didn't come back in Solomon's temple. There was no ark. There was a. There was a. I'm sorry, not in Solomon's temple. And uh, it did come in Solomon's temple. In uh, yeah, Zerubbabel's temple. It, it 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 comes back in the millennial temple. And then in the new earth, what's the temple? It's God Himself. It's God Himself. So why a millennial temple? I think it's the same reason we have communion. So do we, do we, does Jesus need to die again? He doesn't need to die again. Why do we have communion? Are we killing Jesus again? Why do we have it? It's just a remembrance. It's just a place to come and meet God. And, you know, the physical places are important. Right? Because we're physical people. I think this church is important. It's important to have a place to come and meet God. And and, in fact, Paul tells us that we collectively are the temple. The body is the temple as well. The body of Christ. We individually are the temple. We're collectively the temple. And to have a place to come and meet God is good. But... You know, probably one of the more poignant things that happened on our trip... I'll close with this... I uh, had a friend with me that uh, is, is fairly new to studying the Scripture but has tremendous insight. And we went to this Temple Institute 
uh, he, he's Jewish by heritage, and he, he saw it all, and he kind of came out and said, this just doesn't suit well to me. It's just kind of legalistic and formalistic, and, you know, they're trying to figure out how the rules all work. He said, you know that day when we were up on this tell, you know, where we were at an archaeological site, and we, we diverted off, there were a bunch of families up there were having a kite festival. He said, I want to go up there. So we went up there and spent an hour at this kite festival. And the kids were laughing and the families were interacting. And he came out and said, there's people, there's 300 million people surrounding these guys that want to kill them. Now they, they, they in their morning schools in a lot of these countries, they, they start with a chant, death to Amer- Israel, death to America. Uh, you know, there's suicide bombers that want to come over and kill them. And they just, they just want to enjoy life with their family and fly kites. And, and after we went to the Temple Institute, he said, isn't the real temple the people flying kites up on the hill? And I said, yes, actually, that's exactly it. In fact, the kites kind of show the wind, right? The spirit. That's, that's the real spirit of the temple. So while God is showing us here something to look forward to in the millennial kingdom with great detail, like he did the tabernacle, the, the message is not really the blueprint. The message is what the purpose of the thing is in the first place. And I just want to challenge us that when you go to your devotional or we come together in church, are we doing something formalistic and legalistic? Are we checking off the box today? You know, I did my thing today. Or are we coming into the presence of God and having all of our senses engaged because we have an opportunity to interact with the creator of the universe? And as a result of that, be his people and do his work. God, thank you for uh, this amazing um, picture that you give us of the future, the hope that you're going to be king of the earth. I pray that you'll help us be your temples and show your goodness while we're here. We'll be good caretakers of these bodies that you inhabit and that we'll fly our kites and show your your, um, spirit with one another and community with one another and even show... Uh, your presence as we interact with each other in a way that demonstrates, hey, God is love because we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening. 